North Korea's threat to carry out another missile test, along with Kim Jong-un's statement that he has a nuclear button on his desk, has prompted a clear response from the U.S. president. In a tweet, Donald Trump said that he too has a nuclear button, but that his is much bigger and more powerful, adding that his button works. Hello and welcome back to Banter. I'm Max Frost, and I'm joined as always by Matt Weinset. Hey, Matt. Hello. We have another good show for you today. With President Trump in Vietnam now for his second summit with North Korean leader Kim Jong Un, we've invited Oriana Schuyler Mastro on the show. She's one of AEI's Jean Kirkpatrick scholars, and she's going to help us make sense of the summit. Dr. Mastro studies Chinese military and security policy in the Asia Pacific, and she's an assistant professor of security studies at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. She also serves in the Pentagon as a China strategist and in the Air Force as a reserve officer, and holds a PhD in politics from Princeton University. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Hi, Oriana. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So we'll start today by talking a bit about your book, and then I want to get your thoughts on the Trump-Kim summit. Sure. Um, so your newest book is called The Costs of Conversation, Obstacles to Peace Talks in Wartime. Can you tell us a bit about it? What is your main argument in the book? Well, the first thing is I was motivated to write this book because decision makers, defense planners, uh, an average person, we all kind of agree that getting to talks during a time of war is a good thing. But there isn't really any research done about how we get there. And so what this book looks at is why some uh, countries refuse to talk to their enemies during war. And I argue something which I think is very common sense, which is countries believe a willingness to talk and signal weakness on that part. Can tell their enemy maybe that they have degraded capabilities, weakened resolve, or more limited war aims, and can actually encourage or embolden their enemy to hurt them more, right? To escalate or intensify the conflict somehow. And so I write in the book about how this is. Uh, historically, one of the primary obstacles to getting countries to the negotiating table, and it's only when the weaker side believes it has demonstrated enough toughness, enough resiliency, that they're willing to take that risk of opening up talks. Yeah, so you argue that their costs have to be low enough before they want to come to the table. Are these costs real, or is it more like perceived costs about coming off as weak? So there's sort of two things that leaders consider when they make the decision about whether to talk to the enemy. The first thing they ask themselves is, how is the enemy going to perceive uh, my willingness to talk? And as I as I laid out, a lot of times they're worried that they'll perceive eagerness as a sign of weakness. That doesn't create costs in and of itself. It's really the next step, which is how may the enemy respond to a perception of weakness that will increase the cost. So if the enemy does think you're weak and they do escalate or increase the frequency of force against you, um, that is actually actively hurting you in some way during the war effort. You are now absorbing more costs uh, through fighting than you would have otherwise. And so in that way, these are actual uh, real costs that states are concerned about. And so in the book, you make a distinction between combatants with, I think, absolutist aims would be the one um, versus limited aims on the other hand. Right. Can you just differentiate between that a little bit? What I'm guessing, you know, a group like Al-Qaeda, you know, their aims are more absolutist versus... I'm not sure. The examples in the book, the you know the right. Vietnam War, the Korean War. Yeah. So the majority of conflicts between states in the contemporary era and the po- post World War II era are limited wars. These are uh, conflicts in which they end by negotiated settlement. So the book largely talks about 
in this context, getting states to the table so they can negotiate that settlement. But I think the findings of the book are relevant for other scenarios as well. For example, if you take a non-state actor like al-Qaeda, one of the huge obstacles to getting them to the table are these absolute aims. There's, you know, there's difficulty actually in negotiating over these. But what my research shows is that in many cases, a party will say they have these extreme aims, but they're just saying that to demonstrate their toughness, right? They're saying, you know, I'm not going to talk to you unless you agree to all these things which are ridiculous so that they can show they're not under duress and they're willing to fight forever. And that actually when it's time for them to talk, they think they've, you know, they, they won't look weak in doing so. They get rid of some of those preconditions relatively quickly. So they're actually preconditions to talks, um, ultimatums, these types of things actually tend not to be obstacles. But the issue with the non-state actor is, you know, in the book I lay out, if you're worried that the other side will exploit perceptions of weakness, you're going to be even more concerned about this if there's huge power differences between you and your enemy. Mm-hmm. Right? So for the most part, a non-state actor doesn't have the resources a state does. And so the, the dynamics I lay out are going to be exacerbated by this. And so al-Qaeda, you know, the United States might, if it did employ all of its military force against that problem, could possibly wipe out al-Qaeda. Right? So that is such an existential threat. I think it makes the obstacles to conversation even higher. And how beneficial are these talks usually? I mean, if al-Qaeda did strike us again tomorrow, do you think it'd be a a benefit to us to try to negotiate with them, try to enter into talks? Or would that be, would we come off as weak if we do that? Right. So this is kind of the big the big question about uh, the utility of negotiations, and it's completely situational dependent. So one of the big benefits of getting all combatants to the negotiating table is it does increase the likelihood you'll get a settlement that ends the conflict. Now, in many cases, that settlement might not look exactly the way that we want it to look, but we believe there's sort of a benefit to stopping the fighting. In a lot of cases, like in Vietnam, for example, even in the Korean War, talks go on for a very long time. And so I tend to believe that a state's decision about talking is different than their decision to settle. So I argue, for example, you know, that states don't want to look weak, so we should give them some concessions to help them get to the table. But then perhaps it's useful to put pressure on them once they're at the table to get the deal that you want. And so the strategies that you should employ to get someone to talk to you are different than the ones uh, that you employ once you're talking to get them to settle. Do you know off the top of your head what percentage of negotiations end in an actual settlement? If, if it's possible to even know that. Off the top of my head, so these are when war is actually ongoing. It's a... a v- I mean, a very high, I mean, it must be 80, 90 percent. Okay. The question when we talk about al-Qaeda or uh, sort of peacetime or crisis negotiations, this is a very different scenario. When is it the case, for example, that two states will come together and negotiate, you know, the U.S. and China for trade deals, for example? Mm-hmm. And this is different than some of the cases of war because they're not negotiated with the backdrop of violence, right? When you're fighting a war every day that you don't settle this through negotiation is a day that you're paying the costs of fighting. While if that is not there, you can really delay for as long as you want with very little cost in doing so. Well, so, so if, you're, if you're looking at that, where does the current relations with North Korea fit into this? Right. <laughs> 
So one of the things, you know, I talk about the use of military force as really being this backdrop of violence and coercion. Once once a state is being actively coerced, that's what creates this fear that, you know, if I give in, that talking is like giving in, they'll look weak. In some scenarios, in certain really severe scenarios, uh, like if you have severe economic sanctions on a country, for example, I think the similar dynamics can still apply even though you're not at war yet. And so I would put sort of Kim Jong-un in that basket for a while of, of you know, not wanting to directly talk to the United States and the United States the same way. You know, if we agreed to talk to Kim Jong-un, you know, maybe it would signal that we're willing to negotiate over this denuclearization issue, that we're willing to accept something lesser than complete uh, denuclearization. And so some of those dynamics, I think, is what prevented the two sides from coming to the table for a very long time. Um, and one of the things when you're not fighting a war, though, is there's if there is a threat that a war is going to start unless you negotiate, then all of a sudden there's re- there's real benefits to you coming to the table. I think that outweigh some of the costs. And so in the case of North Korea, my personal view is that President Trump's um, threat or consideration of military force against North Korea about a year, year and a half ago was so credible. That's why Kim Jong-un came to the table. Is this when everybody was talking about the quote, bloody nose type threat where we'd kind of hit him with a missile strike or something. You think that was what brought Kim Jong-un to the table, perhaps? So that specific strategy, for the most part, wasn't really being considered very strongly. I think the bloody nose strategy was like the worst of all scenarios, right? Because you don't actually use military force to get rid of the nuclear threat, but you've kind of provoked North Korea. Yeah. I think some of the things that Kim worried about more were more substantive uh, military attacks that would be directed at getting rid of his nuclear capacity. And one of the things that really concerned him was that China and the United States were getting closer and closer to doing contingency planning together. And so I think part of it was he felt that the U.S. military threat was real. And part of it was he felt like he didn't have an ally or partner that was going to help him if it came uh if it came to that. Yeah, in the book, just to return briefly to that, you, you talked about three different case studies of, of conflicts, one of which is the Korean War and the Vietnam War and the Sino-Indian War. What do you, I mean, what lessons do you think can we apply from the Korean War back in the 50s to help us out kind of understand what's happening today? So it seems, you know, the Korean War was now, what, 60, 70 years ago. So it seems like, you know, what can we possibly understand about China in that war that uh, would help us deal with them today? But there actually are a lot of similarities uh, in terms of how China thinks about use of force, their military doctrine. Um, If you look at Chinese military doctrine, what they're teaching their military leaders, some of the lessons of the Korean War are things that they're currently teaching. So one of the things that China believes in that I think is very problematic is that rapid disproportionate escalation of force is what gets their enemy to talk. And so they did this in Korea. They did this in in India. They think, you know, we're not going to do kind of a one step above on the escalation ladder type of thing. We're going to hit them extremely hard, extremely quickly, and then they'll just give up. So Mao wrote extensively about how Nehru, the leader of India at the time, you know, once China attacked them basically unprovoked with major force that India would come to the negotiating table. So China has used this strategy, used it in 79 against the Vietnamese. They used it in Korea as well. Uh, Mao's you know, offensives were basically designed to, what he would say, annihilate as many South Korean and U.S. forces as possible to get them to nego- the negotiating table. Um, and this escalation strategy rarely works. Basically, based on my research and my argument is it makes it less likely the other side wants to talk to you because then they're <laughs> even more fearful that you're, you're just going to think, oh, wow, you know, 
this use of force really worked. I'm going to do this again and, and I'm going to do more of it. So it's very problematic that China doesn't seem to understand that this strategy doesn't work. And they talk about it extensively when dealing with the United States. You know, if they did some sort of major big first strike against the United States, then the United States would stay out of a conflict. While many in the U.S. might say it could be quite the opposite. Well, that sounds kind of, I mean, isn't, I don't, I don't know well enough, but isn't that kind of what Japan tried to do in World War II and it just backfired completely? <laughs> Right, right. In the United States also, our history, you know, our military history, we have a lot of confidence in escalation as a way to get the other side to talk, right? Vietnam was was a perfect example of this, of like, you know, if we just bomb them more, bomb more targets, drop more munitions, you know, this will get the other side to talk. Now, in this real, when I say it really works, I use the word rarely because in extreme scenarios, when basically the other side is no longer physically capable of continuing to fight, then it will work to get them to sue for peace. we didn't even get there with Vietnam, so it seems kind of unlikely we would get there um, with with other countries. So uh, I think this is an important lesson for defense planners. We've learned from history that bombing of civilian populations is ineffective, right? It hardens their resolve uh, against negotiations. And what I'm arguing is these same effects happen with governments. The more you use force against them, the more you try to coerce them to the table, the less likely they are to come to the table. Interesting. So we are talking with them now. Perhaps as you're listening to this podcast, Trump is in Hanoi right now with Kim Jong-un. He tweeted last year that uh, everybody can now feel much safer than the day I took office. There is no longer a nuclear threat from North Korea. Do you think that is an accurate representation of what's happening? Are we legitimately safer now because we are talking with them rather than the sanctioned pressure campaign? So relatively safer, I think, you know... I think I would have to say, yes, we are relatively safer. And if the we there is the United States and not our allies and partners, this administration has made a distinction between the threat against our allies and partners and the threat against the United States. Kim Jong-un can still deliver a nuclear warhead uh, to Tokyo, right, or to Seoul. What really, I think, worried this administration and would worry any administration was his testing of ICBMs, basically missiles that could carry a nuclear warhead to the United States. Now, there's different opinions on this, but my view, and I think many people think that when he, when Kim Jong-un stopped testing, uh, he doesn't have a reliable delivery system. So what that means is he's less likely to use nuclear weapons against the United States and might not even have the capability to deliver them all the way to the U.S. homeland. So that is true. And it's hard to do a counterfactual. Maybe if we didn't agree to talks, things would have continued to escalate and they would have developed that capability. Or maybe things would have continued to escalate. The United States would have used force against North Korea and really denuclearized the peninsula. My sense is we're never going to get them to give up their nuclear weapons. And I actually don't even think this administration's trying to do that anymore. They want to make sure that North Korea can't deliver a system to the United States, but our allies and partners are still very much under threat. How does that affect our long-term relations with Japan and South Korea? So it's not good. Our extended deterrent, this idea that uh, places like Japan, South Korea, Australia don't need nuclear weapons because if they are attacked with a nuclear weapon, we will retaliate, was premised on the fact that we valued Tokyo to the same degree that we value Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Now, the whole Cold War, we tried to convince our allies and partners of this. We were relatively unconvincing because it's not true. I mean, I think we all know that it's not true. And so on one hand, you think, you know, this undermines the deterrent. But for me, I think it also depends on messaging. What I, what I would tell our allies and partners is less, you know, 
that we value Los Angeles as much as we value, you know, your capitals, we should tell them, listen, we're more likely to retaliate when we're out of harm's way, right? Because it's not Seoul and Los Angeles, right? Now it's just Seoul. So of course, the United States is more likely to retaliate against North Korea if North Korea can't touch us. And so I think if we kind of switch the conversation and say, you know, our strategy is such that now North Korea can't uh, hold the United States at risk. And so we are very free to retaliate against North Korea whenever we feel like it, that makes uh, our ability to protect our allies more credible. Maybe the administration has given up on the denuclearizing the peninsula, but I have a bit of a phobia of nukes, and I, I would still like them to denuclearize yes. it. But is that even possible? I remember one of the arguments when they were talking about a possible preemptive strike is the second we do that, Seoul just gets shelled into oblivion. Is there any way to credibly launch a military strike without kind of sacrificing a huge chunk of South Korea to the North Korean onslaught? So I think the short answer is yes, there is. There are a range of possible responses that North Korea could have to an attack. And for example, when you talk about the artillery, there are varying opinions about how devastating that would be. For example, we shouldn't be counting how much artillery they have. That's like counting bullets without counting guns. If you have no guns, it doesn't matter how many bullets you have, right? And there's only so many launchers they have. So the question is, you know, can the United States target launchers quickly enough that artillery wouldn't really do uh, that much uh, damage to Seoul? And so I think that I can think through scenarios in which there's an acceptable cost of conflict associated with a U.S. strike against North Korea. And then I can think of scenarios in which the whole thing escalates to nuclear war and it's very unacceptable. I'm not a North Korean expert. I don't, I can't tell you what Kim Jong-un is thinking. And so it's very difficult for me to decide which scenario is more likely. Well, given that, it may be difficult for me to ask this next question, but I was going to say, how do you think, I mean, there's been, you know, dozens of op-eds written about how this is just weakness. There's one winner and it's Kim Jong-un. Yeah. Are you seeing this as we're negotiating out of weakness? Or you said earlier you, you kind of saw us bringing him to the table. Oh, yeah. We definitely brought him to the table. I mean, the US, the military threat against North Korea was real. China believed it was real. I mean, this is why you got Kim Jong-un visiting China and meeting with Xi Jinping for the first time ever. I mean, there was desperation there. He kowtowed to Xi Jinping, basically asked you know for help to, to meet with the United States. So Kim did not come to the table, I think, you know, in this triumphal position. It was because he thought his regime was at risk. Now, you know, at that time, the United States uh, officials said, you know, we're going to maintain the pressure because they knew of these concerns, which is once you agree to talk to the other side, it becomes difficult that your coercion or your pressure, you know, is going to be is going to be credible. So I think now we haven't really done a good job at maintaining the pressure. And I think part of this is that the U.S. focus has shifted. A year ago, I, the only thing I was asked about was China-North Korea relations. All I ever wrote about was China-North Korea relations. And now it's about the great power competition with China mm-hmm. more broadly. And so I think the government apparatus is more focused on this bilateral competition with China than they are about the North Korea issue. And that's why I think it's kind of fallen to the wayside and it's not a real priority. And so we won't see uh, real progress there. Yeah. I'm, I'm still very curious about the North Korean-China relationship. How closely allied are there? Because, I mean, it seems seemed like to me that we kind of with that pressure campaign, we seem to bring North Korea to their knees. If they can't, they've got to import massive amounts of food. Mm-hmm. And is, was China just willing to help them out with that? I mean, is there any way to kind of disentangle China from North Korea where we can actually isolate North Korea? So China and North Korea are not close in that they don't like each other. And that's important to note. I mean, China 
the leader of China, Xi Jinping, has stated publicly that a, a positive future for the Korean Peninsula is reunification under South Korean control. They don't have a problem with North Korea not existing. What they have a problem with is if that scenario empowers the United States or increases U.S. influence in the region. Because while we have decided just recently we're in this great power competition with China, China's been in a this competition with us now for decades. And so they see the North Korea issue as something that they can use to maneuver. Um, and they don't want the United States military to be able to reposition their forces in a way that is uh, detrimental to them. So that's why they don't want to see reunification. They don't want to see North Korean collapse. Now, in a hypothetical situation in which the United States promised if North Korea didn't exist, we would, we would leave South Korea, then I think China would be more than happy, you know, to put all pressure on North Korea to get them to denuclearize. But as far as far as I know now, that is not our policy. So I don't see it happening anytime soon. Would South Korea ever agree to that? Right. So I, you know, I write a lot about, uh, you know, how I think we could get China on board with supporting our goals vis-a-vis North Korea. But a lot of those suggestions are very unpopular in South mm-hmm. Korea. One of the things I write about is, you know, if China, if we had a conflict in uh, on the Korean Peninsula, that we should be welcoming to Chinese military forces there. Mm-hmm. Now, I would say that is the only scenario I can think of in which I would say that. I mean, the majority of our efforts are focused on fighting the Chinese, right? But because of geographical advantages, China could take control of the nuclear facilities in a matter of days, if not hours, and it will take us weeks to amass the forces to get there. And so having Chinese involvement means a lower likelihood of nuclear use on the peninsula. And for that reason, I think it's worth not trying to deter that type of action. Yeah. Yeah. You know way more about this than I do, but that does seem like kind of just to the average American ears. What? Why why would we want the Chinese military invaded in the Korean War and killed a bunch of us? Why would we why would we welcome that again for them to come back into North Korea while we're still there? Well, so the Chinese don't want to fight the Americans, and the Americans don't want to fight the Chinese, right? So the scenario wouldn't be that we're fighting each other. The scenario would likely be that China seizes control over these facilities before we've even moved. Mm -hmm. And so, like I said, a lot of this is geography, right? They already have, you know, tens of thousands, if not, you know, upwards of 120,000 troops ready to go on the border. Uh, North Korean forces are positioned to resist the U.S. and South Korea, so they're actually very weak forces up north. So the Chinese think they could basically fight their way in relatively quickly. And so the downside of this would be not that we would fight each other because I think both sides would kind of stop before we reached each other. The downside would be then China is in possession of large parts of Korean territory, and they would only agree to leave if the United States agreed to leave. So the end result would be a reunified Korea, but that the U.S. military would not be present. For me, to get rid of the North Korean nuclear threat, to reduce the likelihood of nuclear use on the peninsula during a conflict, that is an exchange I'm willing to make. But many reasonable people could disagree with that. That's very interesting. And just to bring it back to right now and the talks that are going on, there's obviously a lot of people have been saying lately that, you know, there's a chance we'll sign a peace treaty with North Mm -hmm. Korea. Obviously, we never did, just an armistice in 1953. Do you see that happening? And if so, what are the implications of that? It's hard for me to predict what this administration is going to do. Um, I always say, you know, I'm a China special. I'm very confident in my knowledge and predictions about Chinese strategy, less confident in my predictions about our own. I will say I am concerned that this administration doesn't understand the implications of that. Back to what I mentioned before about the broader competition with China. China is trying to leverage this issue 
to push the United States military as far out of the region as it can. Right? That is one of its main goals, whether it's to harass us in the South China Sea um, or to you know, buy off our allies like the Philippines. They're trying to make it harder and harder for the United States military to be present um, in the Asia Pacific. So it wasn't a coincidence that Kim Jong-un said initially before the first summit that he didn't really care about the exercises the United States did. Then he went to China. Then he came back. And he said, actually, I want you to stop those exercises. Right? It's because that's what the Chinese want, is they want the U.S. to stop the exercises, pull our forces, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm concerned that if we sign some sort of peace treaty that says we're no longer at war, then the Chinese are going to grab that onto that and say, well, if you're no longer at war, then what are you still doing here? Yeah. You know, And they're going to try to force the United States to leave. And President Trump has some weird views about U.S. forward presence in which he thinks that's to the benefit of our allies and not to the benefit of the United States, which the United States cannot operate without our forward bases. So it's definitely beneficial for us. And so maybe he would be more than happy to say, oh, maybe I should reduce our troop presence here or there. Um, And so that's a big concern because that would definitely be a win for China. Yeah, that's one of the things Nick Eberstadt, our AEI colleague, North Korean expert, warned about in a New York Times op-ed this week was that if we do have an official end of the war, then totally reasonably, Kim Jong-un would say, then why are forces still on the peninsula if we have a formal end of the war? But, I mean, let's say we do leave South Korea. We still have Japan is still a major ally, right? I mean, how detrimental would it be to our fort position if we no longer had South Korea as a base, but we have other islands in the in the Pacific? Right. So the first thing I'll say about this peace treaty thing is also President Trump doesn't really seem to care what people think is, I don't know, legitimate or not legitimate. So so maybe this our fear is like, well, China could say, then what is your rationale for this? And President Trump might say, I don't have a rationale and I don't care. Right. So <laughs> so it's perfectly possible that he doesn't fall victim to that type of logic. But let's just say he does. And we do leave, you know, one of the reasons why I think and I wrote a lot about this when it seemed like a conflict was much more likely that conceding some of that influence to China in exchange for help in a wartime scenario was a worthwhile exchange is because Our forces on the Korean Peninsula are there just to defend South Korea against North Korea. Given uh, geography and difficulties with some of the systems that China has in place, we can't use those bases in any contingency against China. I mean, China has the capability to render them inoperable in a matter of hours. And so... If I had my, you know, a dream scenario of the region of where I would want to put U.S. forces to make us most effective, for example, in a South China Sea scenario, they're not going to or they're not going to be in South Korea or even Japan. Right. They'd be further south. Now, Japan is very useful for Taiwan scenario. But again, those bases are very severely under threat from, you know, Chinese missiles. So that is a, a whole separate ongoing issue. But you're right to say that for whatever reason, you know, our our presence in South Korea is necessary because North Korea is a threat. I don't actually think it would be useful to maintain it for other contingencies if North Korea did not exist. Yeah. And okay, before we take up too much of your time, one final question. Sure. If you were advising the president today, what would your suggestions be going into the summit? So as much as I'm critical about or seem critical about how we're not really pushing for denuclearization anymore. The bottom line is my main concern is this great power competition with China, right? China is wants to dominate the Indo-Pacific and they want the United States out and they're being very entrepreneurial about seeking those goals. I, I wrote about this in the recent January, February issue of Foreign Affairs. And I don't think we have the ability 
to fight a war in the Korean Peninsula and prevail in a great power competition with China. And so as much as it pains me, you know, I think most scholars, we can say we should do it all. But if you're thinking realistically, I think that we can't put all of our energies on this North Korean nuclear issue. And for me, the main issue is whether or not the United States was held at risk. So if Kim Jong-un at least adheres to his promise not to continue the development of the intercontinental ballistic missiles and the United States continues to be safe from that nuclear threat, I think this path of... Um, reducing the threat by kind of reassuring Kim through summits, through talks is the best way forward while we do refocus our efforts on the real challenge, which is China. Great. Well, we'll have to have you back soon because this has been fascinating. Oriana, thank you so much for coming on Banter. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. If you're not already, we encourage you to subscribe to Banter or iTunes or anywhere podcasts are found. And while you're there, leave us a five-star rating and review. And share it with your friends. Actually, tell your friends. <laughs> you can, Please. You can send any feedback to banter at AEI.org. We'd love to hear from you. But thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. <laughs> every, every reference you make is rather accurate. <laughs> or Goodwill hunting on occasion. My boy's wicked spot. <laughs> okay.